welcome to the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. I'm David Lorimer, co-editor of a new book, Spiritual Awakenings, Scientists and Academics Describe Their Experiences. It's published by the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and is available in paperback and Kindle editions. In this series of weekly podcasts, we'll be sharing the 57 original essays together with introductions and epilogue from my co-editor, Professor Marjorie Willicott. We hope you enjoy them. Mystical Awakening by Arthur Kersler Read by Martin Redfern This essay is exerted with permission from The Invisible Writing by Arthur Kersler and refers to his experiences in the Spanish Civil War in 1937. I was arrested on February the 9th and kept for four days incommunicado in the prison of Malaga, and was transferred on February the 13th to the central prison of Seville. I was standing at the recessed window of cell number 40, and, with a piece of iron spring that I had extracted from the wire mattress, was scratching mathematical formulae on the wall. Mathematics, in particular analytic geometry, had been the favourite hobby of my youth, neglected later on for many years. I was trying to remember how to derive the formula of the hyperbola, and was stumped. Then I tried the ellipse and the parabola, and to my delight succeeded. Next I went on to recall Euclid's proof that the number of primes is infinite. Now, as I recalled the method and scratched the symbols on the wall, I felt the same enchantment. And then, for the first time, I suddenly understood the reason for the enchantment. The scribbled symbols on the wall represented one of the rare cases where a meaningful and comprehensive statement about the infinite is arrived by precise and finite means. The infinite is a mystical mass shrouded in a haze, and yet it was possible to gain some knowledge of it without losing oneself in treacly ambiguities. The significance of this swept over me like a wave. The wave had originated in an articulate verbal insight, but this evaporated at once, leaving in its wake only a wordless essence, a fragrance of eternity, a quiver of the arrow in the blue. I must have stood there for some minutes, entranced with a wordless awareness that this is perfect perfect, until I noticed some slight mental discomfort nagging at the back of my mind, some trivial circumstance that marred the perfection of the moment. Then I remembered the nature of that irrelevant annoyance. I was, of course, in prison and might be shot. But this was immediately answered by a feeling whose verbal translation would be, So what? Is that all? Have you got nothing more serious to worry about? An answer so spontaneous, fresh and amused, as if the intruding annoyance had been the loss of a collar stud. Then I was floating on my back in a river of peace under bridges of silence. It came from nowhere and flowed nowhere. Then there was no river and no I. The I had ceased to exist. It is extremely embarrassing to write down a phrase like that when one has read The Meaning of Meaning and nibbled at logical positivism, 
and aims at verbal precision and dislikes nebulous gushing. Yet mystical experiences, as we dubiously call them, are not nebulous, vague or maudlin. They only become so when we debase them with verbalization. However, to communicate what is incommunicable by its nature, one must somehow put it into words, and so one moves in a vicious circle. When I say the I had ceased to exist, I refer to a concrete experience that is verbally as incommunicable as the feeling aroused by a piano concerto, yet just as real, only much more real. In fact, its primary mark is the sensation that this state is more real than any other one has experienced before, that for the first time the veil has fallen and one is in touch with real reality, the hidden order of things, the X-ray texture of the world, normally obscured by layers of irrelevancy. What distinguishes this type of experience from the emotional entrancements of music, landscapes or love is that the former has a definite intellectual rather than noumenal content. It is meaningful, though not in verbal terms. Verbal transcriptions that come nearest are the unity and interlocking of everything that exists, an interdependence, like that of gravitational fields or communicating vessels. The I ceases to exist because it has, by a kind of mental osmosis, established communication with and been dissolved in the universal pool. It is this process of dissolution and limitless expansion which is sensed as the oceanic feeling, as the draining of all tension, the absolute catharsis, the peace that passeth all understanding. The coming back to the lower order of reality I found to be gradual, like waking up from anaesthesia. There was the equation of the parabola, scratched on the dirty wall, the iron bed, the iron table, and the strip of blue Andalusian sky. But there was no unpleasant hangover as from other modes of intoxication. On the contrary, there remained a sustained and invigorating, serene and fear-dispelling after-effect that lasted for hours and days. It was as if a massive dose of vitamins had been injected into the veins. Or, to change the metaphor, I resumed my travels through my cell like an old car with its batteries freshly recharged. Whether the experience had lasted for a few minutes or an hour, I never knew. In the beginning it occurred two or even three times a week. Then the intervals became longer. It could never be voluntarily induced. After my liberation, it recurred at even longer intervals, perhaps once or twice a year. But by that time the groundwork for change of personality was completed. The hours by the window, which had started with the rational reflecting that finite statements about the infinite were possible, and which in fact represented a series of such statements on a non-rational level, that filled me with a direct certainty that a higher order of reality existed, and that it alone invested existence with meaning. I came to call it later on the reality of the third order, the narrow world of sensory perception 
constituted the first order. This perceptual world enveloped by the conceptual world, which contained phenomena not directly perceivable, such as gravitation, electromagnetic fields and curved space. The second order of reality filled in the gaps and gave meaning to the absurd patchiness of the sensory world. In the same manner, the third order of reality enveloped, interpenetrated and gave meaning to the second. It contained occult phenomena which could not be apprehended or explained either on the sensory or the conceptual level and yet occasionally invaded them like spiritual meteors piercing the primitive's vaulted sky. Just as the conceptual order showed up the illusions and distortions of the senses, so the third order disclosed that time, space and causality, that the isolation, separateness and spatiotemporal limitations of the self were merely optical illusions on the next higher level. It was a text written in invisible ink, and though one could not read it, the knowledge that it existed was sufficient to alter the texture of one's existence and make one's actions conform to the text. I feel that this present account gives far too tidy and logical a description of a spiritual crisis with its constant ups and downs, advances and relapses its oscillations between new certainties and old doubts, its sudden illuminations followed by long periods of inner darkness, petty resentments and fear. My stay in cell number 40 was a protracted compulsory sojourn on the tragic plane, where every day is judgment day. When I got out, the process continued. It had started at the unconscious foundations, but it took many years till it gradually altered the intellectual structure. I do believe that one can suddenly see the light and undergo a change that will completely alter the course of one's life. But a change of this kind takes place at the spiritual core of the subject, and it will take a long time to seep through to the periphery, until, in the end, the entire personality his conscious thoughts and actions, become impregnated with it. In the years that followed, I wrote a number of books in which I attempted to assimilate the experiences of cell number 40. Ethical problems had hitherto played no part in my writing. Now they became a central concern. Finally, in The Yogi and the Commissar, I tried once more to digest, in the form of essays this time, the meaning of the solitary dialogue of cell number 40. This book, written in 1943, closed the cycle. It had taken five years to digest the hours by the window. And as an afterword, we can note that Kersler's later writings focused on science, creativity and mysticism, he had a strong interest in parapsychology and explores this in his book The Roots of Coincidence. He later reviewed possible connections between quantum physics and parapsychological phenomena in his book The Challenge of Chance. He participated in conferences of the Parapsychological Foundation and at the 1974 conference he stated 
So there is now a radical wing in parapsychology, a sort of Trotskyite wing, of which I am a member, with Alistair Hardy and others, who are trying really radically to break away from causality, not only paying lip service to the rejection of causality, or confining this rejection of causality and determinism to the micro-level, but who really wonder whether a completely new approach, indicated in holism, Jung's synchronicity and so on, might not be theoretically more promising. He asked that a part of his estate be donated to a British university for the study of paranormal faculties. This was awarded to the University of Edinburgh to establish the Kersler Chair in Parapsychology. Thanks so much for downloading the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. Do join us for the next episode.